This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. You're a kid thinking about being an architect. You go to school, you take an unreasonable number of classes for years and years. You graduate, start your first job, and instead of thinking, I've made it, you think, how do I do this? We're going to be talking about this exact experience today on episode 84, Building an Architect. Special thanks to Sherwin-Williams for their generous support of today's episode. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to be discussing the somewhat esoteric topic of building an architect. And since this was a topic that I came up with months and months and months ago, there might be some question marks over your head as to what this topic even means. The idea was simply, how do you start with, I don't even know that an architect is a job, and you spend literally decades of your life getting to a point to where it seems a lot of people still go, I don't know what an architect does. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to kind of weird science our way into this building an architect process by talking about the journey a little bit. I thought that would be a good way to talk about the subject. So this particular topic had to do with the journey that we went through. And I say we, I mean, mostly because I feel like what I went through is pretty similar to what everybody has gone through in their careers. I don't think I'm particularly unique and the process that happened to me, but I do tell the story a little bit differently, and there might be some interesting twists and turns to it. I'm sure Andrew has some twists and turns in his experience as well. But realizing that architects exist and thinking that this is what you want to do and preparing for that specific educational path while you're in high school, going to college and studying architecture, and how did your first job go, and did the things you learned in college prepare you for that first day? That's how we're going to break down this conversation. So we're going to begin at the beginning. That was realizing that designing buildings is a job. So the foundation, if you will, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's got to be that moment when you think, like I've told my story a million times about my dad bringing out the piece of wood and I said I was going to build a boat and he goes, no, it's a drafting board. I've told that story a lot. So I'm not going to tell it again. I'm going to cut it into pieces, dad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm going to make a boat out of it. That's funny. So... I was five years old when that moment happened, and I didn't know, one, that building buildings was a job at that point, and I certainly didn't know that architect was a title, like that was a career path that you can go on. But it didn't take me long before that started to being laid at my feet by parents who were trying to either identify or support a curiosity that either they thought I was exhibiting or something they thought, you should do this. So I got drawing boards, I got T-squares, I got triangles, I got sheets of vellum. I got all that stuff when I was a little kid and I didn't draft anything. (laughs) I mean, I I don't know what they expected. I I mean, you know what I drew? I drew like snowball fights. (laughs) Did you ever do that? I drew like, I take a piece of paper. I wish I could find it because they were awesome. I would draw like these snowball fights where I would actually have the trails that the snowball would follow. You know, like you saw whose hand it left. And you could track it across the paper to the face that it smashed into. And the whole piece of paper would just be completely filled, like Escher-like, with 
snowball fight images. Same thing with fighter planes, but they would have trails of smoke. And so I'd have these trails of smoke looping them all in. And you would have to know what trail of smoke was in front or behind that other trail of smoke. Interesting. Interesting. They were amazing. They were, I'm sure they're not nearly as good as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Diagrams of a snowball fight, it sounds like. I don't know that I drew anything like that. I drew all kinds of other stuff. It's funny. I think I drew a lot of technical style drawings, if that makes sense. They were not by any means technical drawings, but I would draw airplanes and jet fighters and helicopters and cars and things that were more sort of technical oriented. I never like drew a lot of people or a lot of animals. I guess maybe I drew a lot of dragons and stuff like <laughs> dinosaurs and stuff like that. But most of my stuff, like especially as I got older, was much more product oriented. I don't know what you want to call it, but like technical types of things. I know I had some books and I would replicate the top view of an F-14 and things like that, you know? Would you draft it though, or were you just kind of sketching it? Yeah, it was all just freehand sketching stuff. I never pulled out my boat slash drafting board and <laughs> drew them. They were all just by hand, you know, my notebook while I was supposed to be taking notes or something like that. Yeah. I mean, my parents, so not only did they give me a drafting board in triangle and T-square, it wasn't that much longer before I actually got a drafting desk. It was all wood. It wasn't cool or anything, but it was a drafting desk and you could flip these little legs up at the back so the table would tilt like that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they bought me like a light table when I was a little kid. Yeah. So I could just trace stuff like crazy. Yeah. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff that went on, but I don't really remember any fruit from those things manifesting itself in buildings. I never drew a building Yeah. with any of that stuff. Did you? I don't know that I did either. Never. No, I don't think so. I mean, I didn't decide I wanted to be an architect until much later in life. So, how late in life? My first semester of college. <laughs> when you decided that rhythmic dancing may not pan out for you? Well, I was an art major, actually. And then I took an architectural history class and then realized, ooh, that'd be cool to be able to do that. Because at the time, you know, I'd done a lot of construction work and things like that. So, I was in really interested in how things go together. But for me, it was not, I'm not one of those people that as a child, I knew I was going to be an architect. While swaddled and wearing diapers and you knew yeah. you're not that person? Well, I just feel like at some point, it's rare. Most architects you talk to, like, ah, since I was like 11 or 12, blah, 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 blah. And it just, they didn't click for me until much later. I actually didn't even know it was a job. Yet you worked in construction. Yeah. Yeah, I did. But <laughs> I never saw an architect. You certainly didn't see any drawings, apparently, so that's par for the course, I guess. No, because I was a kid picking up trash or painting fences, and it wasn't like, I was real low on those labor totem poles, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it is kind of funny. If I had to say, if I took a hundred people who are architects, and I said, when did you know? They all seem to know by their 11 or 12, that sort of thing, except for like yeah. two people. Yeah. And I'm in that group. People are like, what? And I was like, yeah, it was late. Yeah. I loved the Legos and I liked to draw and all those kind of things, but it just didn't. I think it's because I didn't know anybody. There was no architects in my realm of adults that I was around at all. Yeah. You know, I didn't have that either. Hmm. I never met an architect until I was, well, until I got to college, to be honest with you. Yeah. Huh. So here's the other thing I wonder about. I should say out of 103 people come to it later in life, two seem to be like, when they get into college or they change majors. And there's that one person that says, I was 52 years old. You know, there's <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always the second career people, but they're really rare. They're the fork leaf clover of the group, I think, as an, on average. Yeah, I, I would agree. They do happen, but it is pretty rare. So when 
I was in high school, and I'll be interested to see how you answer this. So when I went to high school, this might stun people. I never took an art class, not one art class in high school. And it was because I was in band, and the way the core curriculum was divided up, band was like, well, you're doing band, so you don't have to do art, right? You don't have to do both those things. So you're already getting your fine arts broadening as part of your curriculum just by being in band. So I didn't have to take art, and it didn't even dawn on me that maybe I should take art. And so I didn't. I did, however, take a drafting class. I took two years of drafting when I was in high school, and that was my junior and senior year. And I did take it because I thought, well, I'm going to be an architect. I probably need to learn how to draft. That seemed reasonable. And Yeah, seemed like that's part of it, right? (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it's part of the reason I was watching This Old House on PBS. I felt like I... I was obligated to watch that program. Yeah. And so my drafting professor actually was really his bread and butter at that school was he was the defensive line and weightlifting coach for our football team. (laughs) And then he taught drafting. Nice. You know, he was super cool guy, very chill. I don't actually remember him teaching us anything. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. I have very fond memories of this man. But I don't remember him saying, turn to page 52 and let's talk about how you do this and how you do. It was just like, here's the stuff look at the book, and then he would, pretty sure he would sleep. That's kind of what it was. Do you take any classes? No. I mean, I assume you took art. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Maybe. 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 But again, it was not a huge part of what I was doing in high school, so not any real preparatory classes. Can you imagine how different it is for kids? Because most of them now have to submit a portfolio as part of their application. Like Some kind of creative output has happened before... They go to college. Yeah, it's right? crazy. It's crazy. I wonder if it makes for better architects to show that your predilections are already tilting that way as opposed to do you just think that they're going that way? In my recent years of experience, I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful now. No, and what I mean by that is it's not it's not a given. It's funny. I was having this conversation with some of my, my fourth year students earlier this week. They were talking about having taken quote unquote architecture classes in high school. And all they were were drafting classes, just like you. Right. I mean, while there are some these days that are like architectural studios where they do design projects and things like that, a lot of them are still simply drafting type classes. And so they learned AutoCAD or they learned Revit or something. It wasn't a creative design oriented curriculum. It was just like, here's how to use the software that you're probably going to end up using later. Interesting. And and taught by, (laughs) for some of them. The same kind of thing, random person that just decided that's what they were going to do and not necessarily an architectural educated person. Someone who had some background in the matter. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah. do I'm wrong. There are some like that, but not all. Yeah. I was thinking about if that makes a reasonable segue to get into the college years. And I want to say, so when I started college, you know, we had, there's all the core curriculum classes that you have to take when you go to college. There's the English and the histories and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's part of most education's kind of core. Everybody, doesn't matter if you're an economics major. Yeah. You're taking an English class, two years of that, and you're going to take foreign language, whatever the case may be. One of the things that does make architecture education different is you start off pretty much day one in the college. It's not like business or economics where you go to the university for two years and then you apply to get into your college for the last two years, whatever the case may be architecture, most architecture programs are day one year in the college. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting was, I was just thinking about it right now. I don't remember anybody teaching me how to draw in college. Nobody said, 
here's how you draw an elevation. Here's how you draw a plan. Really? I'm sure it happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it did too, because it still does. I don't, I don't remember them actually saying, hey, when you tape this, there were no computers, right? You tape this piece yeah. of paper down and you draw lines up. Like, I'm sure they showed it, but it's not like I took a class called drafting, you know. Really? 102B. Yeah, I, hmm. I don't ever remember that. The way our freshman studios were broken down is you had a design studio, which was either 8 to 1 or 1 to 6, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. And then you had an environmental sciences studio, which is where they taught you color theory and, I guess, drawing and sketching. It's when they would bring in models and you'd have to draw naked people with charcoal and soft erasers and stuff like that. And those were three hours, Tuesday, Thursday. It was really awkward. Did you draw naked people? You know, I didn't draw naked people until I was in grad school. I will tell you this. Well, I'll tell you these three things. (laughs) So we drew all kinds of naked people. We had a pregnant woman once that came in. And and you're trying to be mature. You're like, this is serious. This is school. Yeah. And it is hard. There was one guy they brought in all the time. And man, he was super jacked. I mean, he was not little. I mean, physically, you're like, this is Superman. Yeah. Like he was thick. But he was very muscular and defined, but he wasn't cutting. You know, it wasn't like I got 5% body fat. Yeah. Everything about him went superior genetic human being. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure he was homeless, though. And there was one time when he went to the bathroom while we were sketching him. And it was like a slow leak. And we're like, you can stop. Like, <laughs> we can take a break. Let's take a break. Because they would say, don't move. These guys would have to hold these positions. And they're like, don't move for like the next 20 minutes. This guy started going to the bathroom. And it's all anybody can think about is this guy dripping over there for 20 minutes. I felt terrible for the guy. But yet I didn't have the courage to say, hey, can we all just take a minute and recognize that this guy needs to go step down the hall? Yeah. Like somehow that was not okay. To this day, I still think about it. That's weird. Yeah, right. And drawing pregnant women, that was intense. Yeah. Right? Because- Pretty sure that there were some people in that room that hadn't seen any of that stuff yet, yeah. like live. Yeah. I look back at them now and I go, it's kind of cool. But it was a skill set that hasn't really translated to what I do today. Yeah. Like, I mean, it helped my ability to see and visualize and communicate with my hand and draw, which brings me to my point real quick. One of the things they had us do, and I think this would be a fun drawing experience for anyone, they would take these line drawings. And they would turn them upside down and they would project them on the wall and you would have to draw it. And one of the things that we learned is when you're drawing things, if you think about the left side of your brain does this and the right side of your brain does this. Let's take a coffee mug, for example. On one side, your brain is saying, I look at it. I see it. I know what it looks like. Here's the shape of it. Here's literally what I'm looking at. The other side of your brain is going to like a little card catalog that says, what is a mug? And it tells you what a mug is. And when you're trying to draw it, you're getting some weird bastardization between what the thing is you're looking at versus what you know the thing you're looking at actually is, which is why people have a hard time drawing when they first start off. So what they would do is they would take these really complicated line drawings. They would put them off the wall and turn them upside down. You would look at it. You didn't know. You couldn't tell really what you were looking at. And can I tell you, everybody right out of the gate drew the most amazing pictures you've ever seen in your life. Mm. You would turn them over and you're like, how did I do this? I'm terrible at drawing, but somehow 
And that's when they explained. And people would stop talking. You would go so far into that side of your brain that's just like the act of seeing and recreating. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite side of your brain where speech is formed. And the professor would say, I love doing this because all you kids, you all shut up. <laughs> Nobody makes a sound. Everybody's making that crazy like concentration yeah. face and their tongue is sticking out. Yeah. And he goes, and nobody knows it because you're, because like. Because everybody's so zoned in. Yeah. Yeah. You're so zoned in on just one half of your brain. And I remember that and I went, it was an amazing experience. So there was this tremendous deep dive into drawing and color theory and form, space, positive, negative. And I'm sure you're getting into, you teach early studios at your school. That's a big part of it. Yeah. And that, well, I'm not doing it this semester, but I am coordinating that class, essentially doing the curriculum and the PhD students are teaching it for what we call visual representation, which is the first semester class where we go over all those things, lines and planes and grids and drawing and elevations and isometrics and axometrics and color theory and shade and shadow and all that kind of stuff and also trying to teach them things like photoshop and illustrator and software that you use to do that kind of stuff it's kind of a catch-all for architectural representation but it's kind of like 101 right we kind of skim the surface of a lot of things but that is a class and we do teach them how to draw elevations i mean i'm sure you had that class maybe you just don't remember it i'm sure i did because i'm awesome at it but <laughs> i had to learn it at some point i don't think i just figured it out, even though I do think that there was a big chunk of my education that was kind of a at arm's length, like, we're not going to burn your hours talking about this because you'll figure that out. Mm -hmm. And I always got the impression, I'll talk to people a lot, that they don't teach people how to use certain software because they're like, you'll just figure that out. Like, you'll just go watch a YouTube video or something. You're not actually going to take a class in Grasshopper, yeah. right? You might take a class where you use that software to do something, but we're not teaching you control shift F2 means this. Yeah. We're not teaching those sorts of classes. Yeah. When I was in school, they did teach those kinds of classes. We had a drafting class, an electronic drafting class. They either taught MicroStation or CAD. And then I know in other classes or other departments, they taught other things. But nowadays, I don't think that they really do that. The stuff that we're teaching them is really basic. We don't get in depth. We spend like a day and a half on it. You know, here's Photoshop in a day and a half. Yeah. Now you figure out the rest of the stuff you want to do. Yeah. I don't know that it, software really gets taught that much, which me personally, there's good and bad points with that, but we'll move on from there. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about what other kind of outside courses did I take when I was getting my architectural education. And I was thinking I was in the band for three years. And when I went to my advisor, like at the start of my fifth year, knowing that I was going to be there six years. Because the number of hours, I want to say my, my degree was like 186 hours, which is almost nobody's doing that unless you're placing out of a year's worth of classes through AP tests or something like that. But You were required that or that's what you ended up with? No, I ended up with over 200. Oh, okay. I had like 207 hours with graduation, but it was like 186 hours. I mean, it was an unreasonable amount for five years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think ours was 150 or something for four years. Yeah. Well, do the math. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's not even four years at 15 hours a semester gets you 120. That's five years at 15 hours a semester. Yeah. Right. Just to get to 150. Now add a six year of yeah. 15 hours a semester to get to 180. Yeah. So I went into my advisor, who was the assistant dean at the time, and he gave me like two credits for band. <laughs> and man, 
And he's like, well, you got to do all these other classes. And I made, I mean, I guess this was like my early skill set coming out. I made this impassioned plea for like, hey, you advocate that you're making well-rounded individuals yet. I'm the only person in this entire school that has been in band. And you're not going to give me credit for that level of participation and the commitment and what it's involved. And I made a whole thing and he goes, all right. And right there, he gave me credit for all three years. And I thought, God, what if I hadn't like <laughs> reacted or done something about it? That would have added like at least another semester worth of hours I would have had to go get yeah, in order to get my degree. So once you take off all the architecture classes and you get rid of all the core curriculum stuff, which I did, I took some of that stuff in summer school. I didn't take English at UT. I took that at Brookhaven Community College to take two classes in the morning and I'd get a job in the afternoon mm-hmm. you know, of the summer. And that's what I did. That's how I did history class that way. I did both my Englishes that way. I did my government that way. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and I was paying 30 bucks an hour, yeah. you know, for classes at Brookhaven. Why wouldn't you do that? Nowadays, if they're good at it, students can get that out of the way in high school, like AP stuff. So they don't even have to do it at all. Yeah. And it's free. I mean, essentially. But it's cheaper than college hours. So I was thinking about all the kind of extra hours that I had at my disposal. I didn't take any business classes. I didn't take any real estate classes. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there trying to think, what other classes besides band did I take when I was in college that were not either required for my degree within the college or not required by the university as part of my core curriculum? So non-architectural electives. Yeah. Yeah. I came up with three. (laughs) You want to know what my powerhouse three was? No, let me hear it. I took a ceramics class, which was actually pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I was 100% the teacher's pet because it was my last semester in school. And he'd say, we want you to make three pots by over the next week. And I'd make like 60, <laughs> you know, because it was awesome. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I had that five years of architecture studio. You're going to be there for five hours kind of mentality already baked into me. <laughs> yeah. These kids would come in and they're like, I got an hour. Whatever they got done an hour, that was it. Uh, and I was just going bananas. That's funny. So I took a ceramics class. I took a karate class. Nice. And I almost failed it. <laughs> and then I took a pass-fail astronomy class that literally almost killed me. <laughs> because I didn't go to class. I hope my, my dad, no one's going to listen to this in my family, but I didn't go to class. And it was just like, you just got to read the book. And every chapter you go take a test. Oh. And I finally go to class and he wants to say, hey, just want to let you know that if you haven't taken the first five tests, that those tests are no longer available to you. And if you want to pass this class, you have to take the, you couldn't just put them all off to the end, which is what I oh, was doing. I got you. And it got to the point where like the last four weeks of the semester, I was taking a test a day <laughs> and I was dying. It was all I could do. I was like. Every day, it was like two and a half hours of astronomy. Go take a test the next day. Then study for two and a half hours. Take the test the next day for like a month just so I wouldn't fail the class. (laughs) I was like, I'm never taking a pass-fail class again. Oh, no, self-paced. That's what it was. Self-paced class. Oh, yeah. Don't recommend that, folks. Don't do it. (laughs) It's bad. Yeah. Although, I mean, if you took it now, you'd probably have a different approach. But Well, yeah, I'd kill it now. But yeah. Look, all those classes were second-class citizens compared to all my architecture classes. This is true. I did everything I needed to do for architecture and whatever time was left over. That's when I did the other coursework. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's all that different. All right, so. Yeah, I don't know about like, I mean, I didn't, I can't even remember either. I mean, I know I took some, I think I took yoga. I took billiards. Billiards? (laughs) Yeah, man, I got to play pool. I mean, I also, in my undergraduate, I took bowling. 
So you'd go to the bowling alley, or then I'd go to the pool hall. That's how cool my extracurriculars were. <laughs> Man. I will say, though, looking back on it, though, I probably would have, had I known, taken some different courses, some business courses or some real estate courses or, I mean, even within the college, like there were some urban planning, land planning courses that probably would have been really useful to me later in my career that at the time I was like, man, that seems dumb. <laughs> we did have land planning and urban planning. We called it community and regional planning when I was in school. Mm -hmm. We did have some of those classes that were part of our architecture degree, but there weren't any financing classes. And you know what? No one ever talked to me about, hey, why don't you burn, instead of this jujitsu class or karate class, whatever it is, why don't you go take intro to accounting, finance, something that would have helped me communicate with a developer later on. Mm -hmm. Just basic concepts would have been really, really helpful. Yeah. So not only did I not do it, nobody ever suggested it as a consideration, which to this day, I'm still kind of stunned by. Yeah. I also wonder though, at times, like having never taken any of those classes, how applicable they would be in a certain way. I feel like they might get into different weeds because I don't know that there's like a intro to business that doesn't really lean heavy on things that might not pertain to architects, but I don't know. Maybe there is an intro to business class or an intro to owning your own business or an intro to legal businesses that might be useful. Wouldn't you think that that would exist? You would think. That would have to exist. I that would, would have to exist. I would hope. Yeah. I still think it probably would have been useful. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Kara Baldev, National Architectural Manager for Coil and Extrusion Coatings with Sherwin-Williams. Hey, Kara, thanks for coming back on the show with us. This is the second time you've come on. Great. Great to be here again. Well, we're happy to have you here. And today, we're talking about something new. We're talking about the new two-coat mica system, the Floripond Continuum. So... I would like to ask you, just right out of the gate, what are coil and extrusion coatings? And can you explain how the Sherwin-Williams Coil Coatings Group is different from interior coatings? Biggest difference is that the Sherwin-Williams Coil Group focuses only on factory applied, baked on liquid finishes for metal building products. You might also be familiar with our flagship Floripon 70% PVDF. This was once under the Valspar brand. Four years ago, Valspar was purchased by Sherwin-Williams, and our group is able to offer new capabilities to the ever-growing Sherwin-Williams library of coatings. Nice. While still maintaining the quality and ingenuity of the products we've been producing for over 55 years, this coil coating segment specifically focuses on factory-applied coil and extrusion finishes used for curtain walls, louvers, metal facade and roof panels. We are providing coatings for your favorite manufacturers, such as Centria, Morin, Apollic, and spray applying those coatings to extrusions for curtain wall systems from companies like Old Castle and Conier. You mentioned a lot of different metal building components. How can metal coatings be incorporated into a design? Well, think for a minute about most airports, stadiums, and towers over 20 stories. There's usually a glimmer of metal or steel reflecting off the sun and Usually our minds might inherently think of silver or white. Our segment helps architects realize their vision for the design of the building envelope. As a coatings company producing Floripon for over 55 years, we have developed over 50,000 colors and can create aesthetics that are anywhere from matte black to a prismatic that shifts in color from pink to green, depending on your orientation to the building. 
based on some things that I just heard, I heard Glimmer and Sparkle. There's a new product in the market called Floorpond Continuum, which is what we're talking about, that's really brought this aesthetic to the next level. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. Floorpond Continuum is an exciting new product. We spent several years perfecting our proprietary two-coat mica-based system. There's this inherent myth that in order to get that high-definition appearance, you need three coats. This might be true if you're using aluminum flake or you have to protect it from oxidizing or need a crazy prismatic look. But with our proprietary mica-based pigments, you can get that sparkle in two coats that can actually outperform the traditional three. Nice. Prior to launching Continuum, we reviewed decades of weathering data at our test fence in Florida to make sure our coatings are formulated to withstand the harshest conditions. This system eliminates that need for the clear coat and offers nearly limitless color options. We aren't limited to silvers here. We have a color called Snake Eyes, which is a green mica, (laughs) and others called Solar Flare and Eternal Flame, if that gives you a visual of how bright we can get in this category. Wow. Good names, too. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Those are awesome. We got creative. (laughs) Even in these color ranges, we're so confident in the performance of Floripon Continuum, we've actually increased the warranty by five years for color, chalk, fade, and film integrity. Sounds great. So what questions can architects ask to make sure that we're getting the right exterior coating? As an architect... I recommend starting the project with that color idea. Visualize what you want that aesthetic to be. Recognize that pigmentation and the substrate impacts the design of your building. In order to ensure you're getting the aesthetic that you want, don't leave color TBD on that finished schedule or specification. We can help align the design and budget correctly to meet these needs, as well as coordinate color codes and applications across multiple manufacturers and building products. Be aware of the project's location. Does it require special treatment for salt spray, corrosion resistance? If you're working on a lead project or need HPDs or red list free products, we can help you there as well. Don't worry about coordinating all of this on your own. We have a team that can assist and over 10,000 stock samples ready to go out the door. Wonderful. For help in getting the answer to these sorts of questions and for information or to order your own color samples, please visit coil.sherwin.com forward slash continuum. Hey, Kara, thanks for chatting with us today. Super appreciate the time and looking forward to taking a look at the Continuum Coil coatings myself. Great. All right. Thanks, Kara. Take care. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, so here it is. You've spent a considerable amount of time getting to this point. A jillion classes, karate, astronomy, all that kind of stuff. You've graduated. Yep. you got this huge brain that you've paid a lot of money to develop. You go get your first job. And I go, what have I been studying? I am not prepared. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Yep. Day two, you get punched in the gut. <laughs> Did you have that moment? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I was in a small firm. I mean, I guess maybe you were too, but a small firm. And it was like, he's like, I got to hand us some stuff and go, take care of this. And I was like, yeah, "Uh, what? Well, so the firm, your firm, the one that you bought was the firm that hired you out of school. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that whatever problems they gave you were school related, right? Because that's kind of projects you guys did. No, not at the time. 
No, not at no? the time, really. Yeah, no, it was more, it was a lot of commercial work, non-public work. But it was buildings. Yes, it was buildings. This is true. Yeah. So my first day on the job, it was just me and the guy who hired me. It was just two of us. That's how small we were. And my first day on the job was moving him out of a closet in his house to a temporary space while our new fancy deluxe 400 square foot units were being built out. It was quite an experience. I will tell you that because what we did at the time was prototype retail design. Mm, so mm -hmm. nothing got wet. I didn't have to do. I it didn't was have all to, interiors. Yeah. It was all interior stuff. And I actually wrote a post once that was, I think, one of the ones back when I was funny. <laughs> and I wrote a post about my secret life as a hooker architect. Oh, uh-huh. It was one of these ones that people seem to really find amusing. It tells a little bit about my personality. But it had to do with, like, you're in a retail and, like, a barker's trying to get you to come into the store. And the store is, like, you're going to design retail environments where you don't have to worry about it getting wet. You're doing all these fancy things. And... Of course, all this is evolving at like a 12-step program, and I'm standing at the stage breaking down as I tell everybody how I sold my soul for, you know, jipboard soffits and, you know, all these fancy details. Yeah, yeah. How I could get clients to pay extra for fancy things. and Lux retail environments. Yeah, but what happened is we did these projects around the country. So my boss would leave to go do site measurements. I was 25, basically, 24. And he was 34. It was just the two of us. Yeah. He was still really young too. And we'd get a job mm -hmm. and he goes, hey, I have to go up to Pittsburgh or whatever to measure the space because we're going to design a store to go into it. So he would leave for days at a time. It could be like a whole week or something. And he's like, all right, we got to put together the package for this. And he goes, I'll be back in a week. And I'm like, what? Like, I, I don't even know how to, I didn't even know how to like do the most basic of things. And so I would pull out past drawings and say, well, he drew these, so I'll start by drawing those, and I'll copy the way he did it, and I'll make it look like that. That's just kind of what it was. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember, and this is the shocking bit, I don't remember ever receiving a single red line to anything that I drew. And I'm not saying because they were so good, I never made any mistakes. I don't think he ever reviewed them. <laughs> right? And it yeah. wasn't something that said, well, this is wrong. I think there was this all right, I'm not going to make you draw storefront details on this job because you don't know how to do them yet. So he would draw them. And then through osmosis or just being around it and having to go to job sites all the time, you would see it and then you just start drawing it. Mm -hmm. There were no books. There were no, you would just see it and go, oh, I guess that makes sense. You just figured it all out for yourself. But my education did not prepare me for any of the technical sides of the practice of architecture at all. Yeah, It was all designed. And the thing that was crazy about it is it actually kind of, Shot the wheels off my career for about the first 10 years I was out of school. Part of the reason I kept changing jobs all the time is because that first job within like a year, I'm presenting to the client by myself and I'm writing proposals and I'm helping with the billing. I'm doing all these things that 25 year olds have no business doing. It's because I didn't have to worry about mortar types and flashing and yeah. putting a roof assembly together. I didn't have to do any of those things. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know how to be an architect. If I had to take the licensing exam, there's no way I could because I don't know what it means to be an architect based on the work that I've been doing. So I would change jobs. I'd go somewhere else to learn how to be like a proper architect and draw things technically and understand the sequence of construction. And that lasts like a week. And they'd say, we got someone else to do that. <laughs> We're going to have you do these things. Yeah. For some people, they go, it's a dream job. Like when I was at RTKL, they wanted me in front of the clients talking and explaining the designs. 
and I would get a task and they'd say, design this thing. You have a day, design a speed ramp at this elevation on this mall, go a day. And I would sketch it up, whatever. And then it left my desk never to be seen again by me. And somebody else would turn it into real architecture and detail it, mm-hmm. dimension it, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I lasted at that job for a year. Yeah, I think there are parts of it that are enticing, but I think having gone through the entire process, that would be painful for me to just hand stuff over nowadays, for sure. When I had my first job, I at least got red lines back. I wasn't, I wasn't left alone. I must left alone some, but there was a couple other people in the office with me at the time. And so it's funny that I'm going to people that were my age or younger than me for help <laughs> on things because like, he had some other students working there. But I was like the first full-time hire that he had had in a while. So I'm like, hey, how are you doing this? Or what are we supposed to do in this? You know, there's some kid that's in undergraduate going, you got to do this. You got to do that. I'm like, okay, thanks. I'm going to go back to my office now. You stay in your cubicle. (laughs) You know, it's kind of weird. It was kind of a weird dynamic. Because in a small firm, I had the only other office. The boss had an office and I had the office right next to it that was practically the same size. And then there was kind of a bullpen of three or four people. And so... It was just kind of weird in the beginning. He'd hand me some stuff and I'd go, okay. And then i kind of walk around to the back and go, hey guys, how do I do this? How did you get a job with an office and there's guys in the cubicle? <laughs> how did that even- Because I had a degree. Are the people doing the drawings- I had a degree. I had a master's degree. So the guys outside didn't have a degree? They were just drafters? Yeah. That had been doing it for a while? Yeah. Or they were still in school and they had been working there for a while. But I mean, I got feedback at least. I can't remember the first project I did was- some sort of stairwell that they were adding to some little bitty thing. And he was just like, here, figure it out and do it. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay. But then it was, I put so much effort into making sure this new stair from in the middle of this little retail center was as perfect as it could be. And I spent way too much time on it, I'm sure. Hours and hours and days of time. That's funny. He made no money. There was no money on that project because of what he paid me. Again, I wasn't getting paid that much, but still. The time that I right. spent on that versus what it really probably got paid. What a waste. It was a lot of figuring things out on my own and asking other people. Because again, he had stuff to do. And I always think it's weird in a small office sometimes when it's really small like that. I mean, you probably have to deal with it too, right? There's this dynamic that you have to deal with. As, this is a whole new individual that's your boss, but now somehow you've got to try to build this relationship because it's the only kind of one you're going to have in the office. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> I had a guy, Mick, that used to work in our office, and he described it really well. So the guy that hired me wasn't that much older than I was. I mean, 10 years is a lot, almost 50% of my life, but 34 is not that old compared to 24. Yeah. And now that I'm in my early 50s, looking back, I go, that's like nothing. And <laughs> yeah, the thing that kind of cracks me up about it is we were friends. Like we were buddies. We drank beer together. We hung out after hours. Mm. I mean, we had a very friendly relationship. But every now and then, he would get mad and he would play the I'm the boss card. Yeah. And this guy, Mick, he used to describe it as, oh, he's got executive-itis or boss-itis. Like, <laughs> a switch just happened and he would say, like, I'm the man. Like, the rest of the time I'm your buddy, but today I'm the boss and you don't get to have this friendly relationship with me. I remember a similar thing. I remember, like, as a small firm and doing work across the state the first time we kind of got trapped in a car together for three or four hours in one direction (laughs) it's kind of like hmm i don't really know what we're doing here like the conversation runs out real quick and it's kind of strange i mean for me for sure because the age difference was bigger i I was in 25 and he was probably at the time in his late 50s mid to late 50s and so there was a pretty big age gap 
And so it was kind of weird at times to have to try to form a relationship in that way in that small office. But, you know, you eventually get to it and it's fine. But in the beginning, it's a unique situation and dynamic, I think. Yeah. I would imagine that, honestly, anyone who goes and works for a small firm, you probably will have that moment to where, like, you all know each other's business. You all have this kind of, you're my friend, but you're also my boss. You care about me in a personal way, but you'll fire me if <laughs> things yeah. are bad. Yeah. I can't count on you to be my friend when things are bad because you still have a business to run. Yeah. That's certainly going to be a part of it. So if we kind of circle back around to the idea of building an architect, we had this whole realize architecture is a profession. There are certain skills that they want to develop. Part of it is how do you start that process? What's the first thing that you did that you can remember doing that helped you become the architect that you are today? That might be a really hard question to answer. I'll go first so you can have some time to think about it because this just popped in my head. I have an easy answer. There's an answer that I always think of because this is one of the questions that I get the most often from people on the website. And they'll say, hey, I'm an eighth grader, I'm a ninth grader or whatever, and I want to be an architect. What should I be doing to prepare myself to become an architect? That's a question that I've gotten a lot. Mm -hmm. I have a response. I've had to figure out what, it was hard to answer that question. And over the years, I've kind of massaged it into the answer that I give people now, which is you need to pay attention to the world around you and you need to understand why you do or do not like something and you need to articulate that, which is something that most people can't do. And I don't know how you teach that to somebody that's just kind of a, you just do it. And the longer you do it, the easier it becomes. And and part of it's just looking at something critically, which is a trait that I think almost all architects have. And certainly it never leaves you. I mean, we've all been at parties. We say, oh, architects, first thing they look at when they walk into a restaurant in the menu, it's the ceiling, you know, or <laughs> yeah. the path that they took from the front door past the hostess station, like it's laid out terribly or, you know, there's all these things that we <laughs> yeah. spatially kind of work ourselves through. And I try to steer young people away from feeling like they need to read books or they need to go buy every Frank Lloyd Wright book there is and understand the logic and read the manifestos <laughs> from Lewis Sullivan. And yeah, yeah. Right? like these are things that you don't need to do when you're in ninth grade. You know what you need to do? You want to go, hey, I like that wall. Why do you like that wall? Can you explain to somebody else why you like that wall? Why does that wall have value? And it's not that because it just feels good or like I like the color. See if you can't elaborate on why that is. And that's one of the very first skill sets that I think an architect should develop. And if it was something that I could stir into my pot as I'm building this architect, that would be something that I think had I been able to develop that skill set when I was in my teen years or in college, that would have paid huge dividends to me for the first 15 years out of school. I think that's something we try to teach, at least in the classes that I have. That's what something we try to teach them in a way, right? When we start to talk about things that it's not because it's cool. Why is it cool? What makes it cool? It's not just that it's cool. We try to get them to talk about their work and talk about others' work. It is in that sense of why is that in a rational, explainable way? Not some one word or kitschy phrase or something like that, but that there is something really about it, whether it's the scale or the proportion or the material or the whatever it is. There's an underlying idea behind it that makes it quote unquote, feel good or makes you like it. You have to think critically about it in order to be able to do that. And I think that that's really the hard part, I think, though, is actually you may be able to figure that out, but to be able to convey that to another person, 
that's where the skill comes in. Because you may be able to understand it yourself, but sometimes getting that from your brain out of your mouth or on paper or something so that someone else understands the reason why you feel that way yeah, is the challenge. Well, we talked about a lot of those things in, you might remember the number, like episode 73 or 76, Six, the, I think, yeah. 76 critical skills of an architect. Yeah. That comes up and being able to articulate why you like something is something that we've talked about. I recall with a little bit of fondness when you were saying, it's cool. What did you do? I did it because it was cool. Yeah. Do you know how badly I wished for somebody to just say they did something because it was cool? <laughs> After a while, I was so sick of the, oh, the Axis Mundi and the procession and the little, little, all the Arca speak that comes out. Yeah. That was just making me want to barf. I wanted somebody, anybody, to have the guts just stand up there and say, I did this because it's cool. And then they could say, and here's why it's cool. Yeah. And they don't have to have all that Arca speak. Yeah. Never seen it. I've never seen that. Most of my stuff in my freshman classes, we're just trying to get them to think about things differently because that's all they say is it's cool. It looks, it looks nice. But I agree. It's about being able to just to articulate your rationale for things. Because a majority of your time later, I think, and in the, in the longer you end up in your career, you spend a lot of time doing that. You spend an unbelievable amount of time explaining the rationale for making the decisions that are being made, whether that's to people that are working on the projects with you, whether that's your consultants, whether that's the clients, whether that's the owners. You spend a lot of time doing that, and you've got to be able to hone that skill and work on that. Again, it's a skill. You just have to practice. I was just kind of thinking of a moment I had today when I was a jerk. <laughs> I was. I was a jerk, and I feel bad about it. I felt bad about it in the moment, but I was like, yeah, but I'm right. So I didn't feel too bad about it. The more I think about it, the yeah. more of a jerk I feel like because uh, we're talking about this process of explaining yourself and saying, I made these decisions for these reasons and, you know, and everyone listens and it makes sense and you go, yes, you're a genius, those kind of <laughs> things. I don't know if it works out that way, but yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. My presentations, that's how those end. Oh, okay. I got you. But this gentleman in my office, he's doing this stuff, and I walk over. I walk over there pretty often, and I beat him down constantly because I don't let him get too far in front of himself because sometimes he's gone down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, this is good. It's not what they want. They ask for something else. So this goes back to the lemonade, raspberry lemonade conversation. Give me the lemonade, and then you can make the raspberry lemonade. Don't skip the lemonade and go straight to the raspberry lemonade. Mm -hmm. We got to deal with what the client wants. So- as he was explaining it, and I was like, I don't need to explain it. I can see it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just totally, I totally, he's like, well, you know, I recess this in to articulate the lines with the door. And I was like, yeah, I can see that. I don't need you to explain <laughs> architecture to me. And I don't mean like I'm such a grand poobah that I understand all architecture, but yeah. it was very kind of shallow conversation. Like, oh, I did this because there's a door here. And I go. I can see that. I, yeah. I mean, I can see why you did what you did. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, because we got to make the lemonade first, Andrew. Yeah. Not the raspberry lemonade. And that's true. You got to watch that sort of thing right there, though, is you're right. You got to be careful to not come across as super sanctimonious and arrogant and all those things that sometimes get attributed to architects explaining things to other people. Sometimes we get a bad rap for the way that we do that, in which... My response would be that they're not good at doing that. They may think that they are, and they like to use all that Arca speak and architectural garbage that comes out of people's mouths, but that doesn't mean it's the best way to communicate the reasons and the rationale. 
it's typically the worst way, actually, in <laughs> yeah. my opinion. Oh, no, for sure. But I, I will say, in defense of the person I was speaking about, he was making it better. Everything he was doing did take what the owner asked for and made it better. I can't dispute it. It was yeah. better. Yeah. But it's not what they asked for. And this particular client, we need to walk them through why, if they say, give me this, we need to give them that even if we go, well, this is not really the best way to do it. This is a better way. Or here's some additional things we'd like you to consider. Or yeah. here's some ramifications of that decision making. And then they can see it and they can like respond accordingly to it. We can't jump any of those steps to get them to that end product because they need to see it and live it and experience so that they can conclude for themselves that the idea they had may not be the best way to go about achieving their goals. So we have to go through that process with them, which is fine. That's why you hire us is to help you get from A to B, regardless of what the trail looks like between those two points. And so I was a little curt because I was like, I don't want to hear all this for five minutes. Just I can see it. <laughs> Okay, that's not what they want. That's why I came yeah. over here. I can see you not doing what I know that they want. I just want to make sure that you give them what they want first. And you just walk away going, all I do is tell them, don't, no, stop. It's, it's not what they want. And in his yeah, mind, yeah, he's yeah. like, what they want is terrible. And I'm just beating him down. I agree. You have to give them what they want and then show them that these alternative ways might be better. The way that he was doing it, if it is better, but you can't skip over that because then they think you're not listening to what they want. You have to show them the things that they want and then show them the alternatives that in your mind and with your expertise are probably a better way to do it. So there is that skill set that we kind of alluded to that's like what you learn in school and how that manifests on day one, the listening and the understanding the path that you need to bring people on. And you're not talking to the architects all the time, like talking to clients, presenting to them in a way that brings them along, helps them have ownership. They are the one that's hired you to yeah. to do what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like yeah. they're saying, I'm hiring you to do this building for me. You need to make them part of that journey to skip over some steps because you can get to where the end is faster than they can is not the right way to go about it. And that's something that I don't know that anybody talks about in school either because it's always about you, your design, mm -hmm. your decisions, your process, things that you did. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? They don't have a client in that mix that can say, Curveball, take this thing that's <laughs> awesome. I don't want it. I want to put a banana on it. You're like, what? Yeah, I don't like it. It should be brown. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, well, crap, now what do I do? That's a facet of our education that is not represented and it represents a huge chunk of our behavior in the professional world when we're actually hired to do the things we're hired to do. Yeah. Okay. So that was our building an architect episode. I actually enjoy talking about these sort of things because. It'll be interesting if we get any comments because somebody's journey was either very, very, very similar or very, very, very dissimilar. I would imagine it's going to be one end or the other is what I think we're going to end up seeing. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. I'm really interested to see how many people, what that average age of I knew I was going to be an architect was and see if we stick to our 97 out of 100 new by the age of 12. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty confident. About, I am too. I am too. About that number. So. Okay, so let's get to this episode's Would You Rather. <laughs> and so I came up, well, I, don't, I didn't come up with them. I searched, because these are hard to come up with after a while. It's like once you've done like 50, you're like, oh, God. Yeah. We told you, I don't want to do any Sophie's Choice one. I don't want to do any, like, <laughs> would you rather kill? Yeah, all mine are out. 
Well, most of mine are out. Like one good person or five bad people. I go, I don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. So I want it borderline preposterous, but something that you can put some critical thinking skills to in order to have a more interesting conversation. Because really, hopefully everybody's figured that out. Part of the reason why we started the hypothetical and then ultimately the would you rather, it had to do with a way of humanizing us as human beings. You know, like when we say, well, I'd rather drink beer versus tequila, whatever the question might possibly be. Yeah. But the other part of it is this is really a lesson in critical thinking. How can you take two things that are ridiculous or abstract or whatever and apply a certain kind of real world thought process to it to come up to why you would rather live in a tree than in a cave? <laughs> <laughs> these aren't necessarily real world situations. So they're critical thinking skills. That's why I think these questions are still interesting. I was going to say also, I think it's because it's typical of the way that we look at problems. We think about all these different aspects that might could impact that problem, right? Which sometimes maybe normal people don't do. They just go, oh yeah, choice A or choice B, no question. And we're like, yeah. but what about this and that and that and this and that? And, and that that's, I think, what we do as a profession a lot and how we go through that process of figuring out what needs to happen. Okay, so for today's critical thinking exercise, also known as the Would You Rather, <laughs> I have one that I think will be a good one to discuss, and I'm going to confess, I don't know what my answer is, and I have no idea what your answer is going to be. Would you rather travel the world all expenses paid, which is lodging and transportation costs, for a year, or have $75,000 to spend on anything? Boom. That's the question. If you're thinking, it seems like it would be easy, but it's really not that easy because it's just lodging and transportation. You can't go and go, I'm going to stay at Shangri-La and I'm going to eat lobster every day. Like, No, it's just, this is regular. Yeah, it's kind of limited. Normal travel stuff. You can't go bananas. Maybe that you will go bananas. all you can afford to pay for. But it's just like, you're able to stay places and you're able to get to those places. That's really what it is. And then I chose $75,000 because it was just enough to buy something, but not so much to like ease your burden. Like you can't pay off your house or you can't pay for college education. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just enough to like, go, like it makes my life a little bit better for a while, but I can't profoundly. Like if I said $150,000, you're like, boom, mortgage Done. payment. Yeah. I'm out. It's just enough to where you could go, well, I could buy a Porsche, right? Like, I'm going to do something <laughs> yeah. crazy with this found money, because that's kind of what it is. Or, because we're, we're not getting into the whole, well, how you pay in your regular bills. We're suspending time and all that kind of stuff. This is, you can go travel for a year and it's fine. You don't have to worry about feeding your pets, whatever. <laughs> that's not part of the consideration. Yeah. Well, I would include that in lodging. <laughs> Their lodging is paid for while I'm gone. Yeah, it's taken care of. Yeah. So, it's just you. It's not you and a significant other spouse. And you have no significant other for the purposes of this question. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, doesn't change the answer for me, I don't think, but I don't know. <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> I know. I know. You know, I, I I don't know. I think I'm going to have to go with the $75,000, though. I think that that would be what I would do. Really? Yeah, mainly because I think there... That would, I mean, see, that's the hard thing for me to say. I was about to say, I think that would make my life better in the long run, right? I could use a little bit for this or a little bit for that or whatever, whatever, you know, right? Like I could get some new, maybe some new furniture or some, whatever, right? Replace the floor in the living room, whatever, those kind of things that are going to last me a little bit longer. 
But at the same time, I mean, I think that a one year of traveling around the world would really impact me for a long time as well. Mm -hmm. That would have some profound, I don't know, impacts on my soul, if you will. But that, uh, <laughs> but that the seventy five thousand dollars might have a more practical impact on my reality. I think I would do that because even if I wanted to take that seventy five thousand dollars and take some of that, even if I was going to say half of it to take a trip and go travel for three months or something or four months, then I'd still have some money left over. I think I'm doing the $75,000 because it gives me a little bit more flexibility. All right. All right. I think that's where I'm at, I think. I can appreciate the angle you took to game the thing by saying, well, I'm going to take 75 and I'm going to fix A, B, C, D, and E, but reserve part of it to go do some of that traveling so I get a little surf and a little turf, right? Well, I'm just, if I wanted to, that's all I'm saying is if I wanted to. Yes. So props for taking that angle. Yeah. I think that's really trying to, it's kind of the, you don't get the best of either world, but you don't miss out on the other either. Right? Yeah, like, of course. You get, you get a little bit of both. Going to game the system. I'm going to say this is the wrong answer. Uh, okay. Fair. <laughs> Let me hear why. I'm, I'm curious as to this. I'm just going to, you know, of course, I was just going to choose whatever answer you did and say that's the wrong answer <laughs> and pick the other one. That was my strategy. <laughs> Here's why I think $75,000. That's a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's profound. It's like make these handful of things better. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I would, I would do something responsible with it. And then at the end of the day or the end of the $75,000, I don't think I would look at the handful of responsible things that I did and really puff up my chest and go, I nailed it. Mm -hmm. I really made a difference. Those wood floors are beautiful. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. I don't think I would get that. To that extent, I think that if you traveled for a year, even if it's not luxury traveling, we're just saying you get there and you move around and you have a place to sleep. And We're not saying you're staying in hostels. We're not crazy. Come on. <laughs> it's not tent camping. Yeah. Yeah. I don't live in tents or sleeping on park benches and you get a blanket every city you go to. I do think that that would be a far more rewarding thing to experience in retrospect. And my whole approach to how I evaluate which is the correct decision is not picking a moment and looking forward at like what I'm going to do with it. It has to do with after the fact, looking back and say, what did I do with it? I think that if I spent it solving financial problems or paying bills or whatever, I could always say, I could have paid that off and I didn't, or I didn't pay that off, or mm -hmm. did I spend it the right way? And you know, it's always the second guessing. And, and I don't think that, I don't have any bills that it's like, oh, $75,000, done. I'm just going to put it towards my mortgage payment. That's not going to make me feel good. <laughs> I'm not going to feel good looking back at yeah. that. My deathbed, I'm not going to say, oh my God, you know, that time when I paid off my mortgage payment. A little early. I paid it down. Not, not off. I just paid it yeah. down. That was yeah. genius. But I do think that looking back and going, here's how I traveled. Here's what I experienced. Here's what I saw. I think that that fundamentally changes you as a human being in a way that paying bills or Because I would, I would be practical. I wouldn't be that guy that bought a Porsche. If you were that guy that said, I would go buy a Porsche or I'd do something crazy with the $75,000, mm -hmm. I would probably be more prone to say yes to that in this hypothetical situation. Something spectacular that you wouldn't normally do. Is the braver thing to do rather than pay down your obligations, even though that probably would be the smarter thing to do. 
So that's why of those two choices, I would choose the one that represents more horizon broadening than reality crushing. Interesting. Interesting. I understand that. That's what I meant by how traveling would be much better for my soul. Yes. And it's funny. I think if the amount had been larger, then I would have thought about it in a less practical sense, quite honestly. Oh, I know. I changed that number like five times. You know what I'm saying? Because if it was 150000 then I would have definitely said, all right, I'm still going to use X amount for this, and then I would have used a lot more for travel. I would have done something more frivolous because it was more money than like I really, not going to say needed, but it would seem like there was an excess, whereas it seems like 75000 is kind of a practical amount. I mean, I hate to say that. That sounds like super crazy because it is, it is a lot of money. If you start breaking it up into chunks and as a, a homeowner and a child owner and it starts to disperse pretty quickly yeah. at 75000 there's not a lot left over. Well, that, that's why I chose it. When I, yeah. when I had it at one hundred and fifty, I went, that's an easy decision. It's not hard for me to make a responsible decision with $150,000. There's no doubt I would pay down my mortgage payment because I went, okay, well, now I can afford to take a $5,000 vacation every single year, once or twice, yeah. because I'm not having to pay off my mortgage. Yeah. 75 doesn't move that needle that much. Hmm. 150, I go, well, that's harder to ignore at that point. So I was yeah. purposely chose that number to make it hard to decide, I can't really be too crazy and I can't go bonkers. I didn't even consider using part of it for travel and part of it for bills. That wasn't even something I considered. See, I just want the best of both worlds. Although the other thing about it, though, is the lodging and transportation costs. So it's not like all expenses paid, or is it? It's not all expenses paid. So if I'm going to go do something or if I'm going to eat nice, that seems like that's not part of it, which if I'm going to travel for a year, I would want to have all that stuff covered. I did change it. Originally, when I found this question online, I changed it quite a bit. They mm -hmm. had a much higher number and it was all expenses paid. I covered everything and I went, well, that's super easy. That's mm -hmm. super easy. If I can travel the world and I'm flying first class and I'm staying in world-class hotels and I'm eating lobster and steak and yeah. I go, that's a no-brainer for me. I go, that's so easy to choose. So I wanted to say, all right, I'm not giving you everything when you travel. So you still have to be a little frugal. Frugal, yeah. You can't just be bananas about it. And then I wanted to lower the dollar amount so that it was high enough to where it could do something, but not so high enough that it was going to change your life. Yeah. 150, who wouldn't pay off their mortgage? So Maniacs. That's who. <laughs> so what I'm curious about, though, is that the other thing that you said about it was like that it was just you. So in this scenario, and you're leaving your family for a year. No, no, no. In this scenario, my family doesn't exist. Oh, okay. Well, that changes a little bit then. If they existed, I wouldn't, obviously, I wouldn't abandon my wife and daughter. <laughs> okay. Well, that was my question to it because I was like, well, I mean, because for me, you know, leaving my kids for a year might be tough. Yeah. And I also made it like they don't exist because if it was you and your family can do this, then no brainer. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, for sure. For sure. We're all traveling for a year. Yeah. Right. It's, it's too easy. Yeah. It's too easy. Because that's the other thing we're trying to do, like make this hard. It shouldn't be like super one or the other. It kind of be like, boy, it's close on this one. It's got to be close. Right. Or there's no struggle. There's no way to critically work your way through it. Yeah. So I think I would go with my option to take the money, but I would make myself self-allocate money to go on some sort of traveling expedition that I wouldn't normally do. You go to the Trappist monks. Yeah. That's what you do. I'd take that money and I would split it and be like, here's responsible money and here's, let's do something. Interesting. Soul modifying with it. At 75 for me, I'd say at most, I'd probably give myself like 
10 to go do like a nice vacation yeah. and not half. No, That's irresponsible, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, because going on vacation for a year is not irresponsible. Uh, well. But I feel like that would be my approach for like almost any amount of money. It would always be half responsible, half irresponsible. Some percentage of those things. Unless it's like 20 bucks and then, then it's all one or the other. <laughs> Mine's always 80% responsible, 10% charity, 10% crazy. Gotcha. Uh, that's my policy. All right. I'm going to say that's the answer, right? So we chose both sides of it. You guys can let us know who answered better. It'll be me, but that's fine. You know. I think it's me because I got both with one answer. All right. So there you go. Another episode in the books. I hope you enjoyed the more serious part of today's conversation. And thank you for being with us today for episode 84, Building an Architect. We would also like to thank our sponsor, Sherwin-Williams, for their generous support of this episode. Special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get fresh and smooth new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you leave us a five-star, a bit of this, and a bit of that rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.
Oh, You know, I've been like having to hold myself back every time you talk about building an architect to go like, like and the million dollar man. Because <laughs> like we're building it faster, stronger, better. <laughs> That's right.